This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for November 25th, 2019. Immigration is a hot-button topic and getting hotter. In this podcast, I talk to a campaigner and see how well his arguments stand up. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. If you banned all immigration, legal immigration, you would also reduce the absolute number of crimes because you'd have a lower population in the country, correct? Again, but the, the people who are legal immigrants are not violating any laws. Uh, yes, I mean, you can do it. Well, some of them you, are. You know, it, it, some of them are, yes, and we should deal with them. So if you kept them all out, then those crimes wouldn't have been We'll have that in a couple of minutes. But first, I want to say thank you to all of the people who donate to my Patreon. I appreciate them all. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a website that allows people to donate a buck or two for each podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of this show. About 40 men were taken into a barn and shot. Following that, at least 300 men, women and children, including infants, were rounded up and locked in the barn, which was doused with gasoline and set on fire. Anyone who tried to escape was shot. All of them died. This is what happened in a small village called Jedwabne, on July 10th, 1941, in Nazi-occupied Poland. Before the massacre, Jedwabne had a population of about 1,500 Jews and 700 Catholics. Some of the details are lost to history because of the fog of war, but one thing is notable about this outrage. There were Nazi forces present in the village earlier that day, and some may have taken part on the periphery, but the massacre was not carried out by Germans. In Yedvabne, the Jews were murdered by their neighbours. They were killed by Catholic Poles, who they had lived beside for generations. Clearly there were ethnic tensions before the Nazi invasion, and these were exacerbated by the perceived and sometimes real support for the Soviet Union in the Jewish community. The area had been under Soviet occupation until a few months previously. In post-war communist Poland, there were trials of people accused of participating in the pogrom. Several local Catholic men were convicted. Their trials fell drastically short of anything that could be considered fair or impartial, but despite this, there is no serious historical source that disputes the central fact that local Catholic Poles murdered hundreds of their Jewish neighbours. No serious historical source. That doesn't mean it isn't disputed. In 2018, 
Poland's conservative ruling party, a party called Law and Justice, passed a law making it a criminal offence to publicly state that the Polish nation was in any way complicit in the Nazi crimes committed by the Third German Reich. The truth is that many Poles gave their lives fighting bravely against the Nazis, but some Poles were collaborators, sometimes under duress, and some, as happened in Jedwabne, were enthusiastic in their treason. The 2018 Polish law effectively extended a practice in Poland's schools to the whole of society, making it impossible to tell the truth. There was an international outcry and the law was changed to remove the prison sentence, but the offence remains. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance has compiled the most widely accepted definition of anti-Semitism. It contains several examples, including one which reads, denying the fact, scope, mechanisms or intentionality of the genocide of the Jewish people at the hands of National Socialist Germany and its supporters and accomplices during World War II. Poland's legally compelled anti-Semitic lies are an example of what happens when people can't win an argument on the facts, so they just make up their own facts. This is poison for public debate, but it's not the only example of this. A couple of weeks ago, the Republican-controlled House in Ohio passed a bill instructing teachers in public schools how to grade pupils taking exams. Under the law, students can't be penalised if their work is scientifically wrong as long as the reasoning is because of their religious beliefs. So, if a geography teacher sets a pop quiz with a question, which is closest to the age of the Earth, 5 billion, 5 million, 5,000 or 500 years, and a student gets it wrong and ticks 5,000 instead of 5 billion, the teacher isn't legally allowed to mark them wrong. And, presumably, if the student says that the Sun orbits the Earth, or the earth is supported by elephants on the back of a giant turtle, or any number of religious-inspired answers, the teacher is legally obliged to mark them right. And even if the student gets some basic math wrong, says that 2 plus 2 equals 5, what's to stop them from saying that's based on their religious belief, so top marks please. Once the answer is based on what's in the student's mind and not what's true in reality, there's nothing to hold on to. These two examples are on different scales, but they both show a disconnection from the real world. If the facts aren't the way you want them to be, you just pass a law to change them, or at least to force people to agree with you. Any belief system that must be shielded from reality by the force of law doesn't have much going for it. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Ira Mailman. He is the media director of an organization called the Federation for American Immigration Reform, also called FAIR. Ira, what is FAIR for? What's it all about? 
Well, fair attempts to represent the interests of the American public in the immigration debate. You know, immigration obviously affects immigrants, and immigrants are stakeholders. But what tends to be lost in the debate is that the American public is really the primary stakeholder. It's a public policy, and it should uh, serve identifiable public and national interests. And, you know, I think most people would agree that, that it is not doing that. And we try to represent the interests of the American public in this ongoing debate. And how do you do that? Uh, in a variety of ways. You know, we tried to educate the public about the implications of excessive immigration, uh, illegal immigration. We are primarily an educational group, and our mission is to sort of inform the American public what is going on. Uh, we also, as a 501c3, can spend a certain percentage of our budget lobbying Congress uh, for various changes to our immigration policy, and we do that. Uh, we try to work with activists around the country to to uh, facilitate changes at lo- the local level. So we do a variety of things. And then, of course, talking to the media uh, is another way to get the message out there. Okay. Fair, I think, became quite well known because it was involved in a successful campaign against George W. Bush's immigration reform bill, which I think ultimately failed. Would it be fair to call FAIR a strongly anti-immigration organization. No, that that would not be fair at all. Uh, We are not against immigration. Uh, We simply believe that the immigration policy needs to be more modest in terms of the numbers of people admitted. Uh, We need to have a merit-based system that admits people based on some objective assessment of their likelihood to succeed once they arrive in the United States. Uh, But we are not against immigration and certainly not against immigrants. Uh, You know, very often immigration and immigrants are conflated. uh, And that is something that kind of poisons the whole debate. We ought to be able to have a reasonable discussion about a public policy, a very important public policy, without people saying that you're impugning uh, immigrants um, just based on the fact that they were born someplace else. That that is not what we try to do. What we try to do is... Lay out what we believe would be a rational immigration policy for the United States in the 21st century and, uh, you know, to try to do what we can to bring that about. OK, you say you're not anti-immigration. You don't deny that FAIR was very deeply involved in that campaign against George W. Bush's uh, immigration reform bill. You, you accept that that was uh, yes. that, that you sunk that essentially? Yeah, it, it was a bad bill. It was a repeat of the failed effort in 1986. Uh, basically, it was it said, you know, we'll give amnesty to everybody who's here, and we promise that somewhere down the line we'll actually fix things so that we don't want, end up right back in this situation. And you know, which brings to mind the old adage: "Fooled me once, shame on you; fooled me twice, shame on me." Uh, if it, I, if it I might, just, if I might just characterize, and you can tell me if I'm getting this wrong or not, if I might characterize what your position on that was, it was that there was essentially a provision to say, okay, everybody who's here gets regularized and then we have a very careful assessment of who is let in after that. You were fearful that, oh, we just regularize everybody who's here and then 
more immigrants come and then we have to, we, you get back into the same position. Is that a fair assessment of? That, of that's what? correct. We, we've been down this road before. In 1986, the bargain was we would we'd give amnesty to the people who were here, kind of wipe the slate clean, but we'd be serious about enforcement in the future. Uh, back in 1986, we granted amnesty to about 3 million illegal aliens who were living in the United States at the time. Uh, by the time George Bush was president, uh, George W. Bush was president, uh, and they were contemplating an amnesty. The numbers were, you know, in the 10 to 12 million range. So mm -hmm. clearly, the bargain in 1986, it, it was kept in full to the people who violated our laws. It was completely abrogated when it comes to the interests of the American people. Uh, we didn't do border security. We didn't stop people from working in this country and taking jobs uh, that might have gone to American workers. Uh, we didn't do all the things that the American public was promised to avoid not only getting back into the same situation, but getting back into a situation that was three to four times worse. Okay, I, I want to park that. And one thing that you said earlier, wh which I certainly agree with, that people should be able to have a cool debate about immigration without anybody being accused of being a racist or being accused of uh, having their character denigrated when what they want to do is to promote a particular point of view. And I very strongly agree with that. I want to look at what's on your website now. The two most prominent things on the front page of your website refer to, and I'll read them out, well, there's three, there's one a reference to the president, but the other two are, how much are you paying for illegal immigration? Click here to find out. And stolen lives, victims of illegal alien crime. And you made the point, which I thoroughly agree with, that when you're having a, a policy debate, you shouldn't have uh, epithets or uh, ad hominems thrown around are you sure that you're following that? I'm not sure that those two issues really serve or that a good analysis of those issues serve the, the, the debate that you in the way that you think it does. Well, I mean, that that's uh, maybe an opinion, but, but certainly um, that there's nothing objectionable about talking about the fiscal costs of, of a particular policy or failing to enforce our immigration laws. Uh, these are consequences of our failure to enforce immigration laws. Once people come to the United States, we do have certain obligations. Uh, the Supreme Court has said that we are obligated to provide K-12 through education uh, to any child who comes into the United States, regardless of immigration status. We're certainly you know, not going to allow people to die on the street. We have to provide people with a certain level of health care. Uh, other basic needs need to be met. Because you said, Ira, that we should look at the costs of a policy or failure to implement that policy but we should look at it truthfully and we should we should be careful about the facts on that you would agree uh, yes we should be careful about the facts and i think everything that we say in there is factual uh, and by the way i mean if you were talking to somebody on the other side of the debate that was pointing to you know make, making claims that it was a financial or fiscal boon mm -hmm. um you know, would that be any more relevant? Uh, you know, the fact well, is... Well, it would like, be important whether any, it's true. And, um, well, do you have evidence to suggest that what we're saying in there is not true? I'm looking at what you have on the website here, and it's got pluses and minuses, and it's laid out very visually. And you've got a big red cost of $116 billion a year, which you say is the cost of 
of the illegal immigration. And I just looked up a few other studies on that. One of them notably is from the Brookings Institute, which is fairly clear. It says that there is a net positive to the economy. I'll just read you out the quote. It says, the most recent economic evidence suggests that on average, immigrant workers increase the opportunities and incomes of Americans. Based on a survey of the academic literature, economists do not tend to find that immigrants caused any sizable decrease in wages and in empl- and employment of US-born citizens, and instead may raise wages and lower prices in the aggregate. Now that's not the only well, uh, that's not the only uh, opinion on that there are other academic opinions on that and some of them are in the negative but extremely modest that they essentially say that the effect is very small and difficult to detect would you accept that the figures that you give even if you believe them and if you claim they're true would you accept that they are outliers no, they're not outliers. You have people like George Borjas at Harvard University uh, that have come to similar kinds of estimates. It, you know, it, it, a lot of what goes into these reports or comes out of these reports is the factors that they look at. And if you look simply at, you know, uh, public assistance, you know, something in the form of a check with your name on it, mm-hmm. then it's true. Uh, you know, immigrants are paying or even illegal immigrants are paying more than they're receiving in those benefits. Yep. But most kinds of public benefits don't come in in the form of a check with your name on it. Uh, it comes in terms of public education. If you look at a city like New York, it's $20,000 a year to educate a child in a public school. Uh, you know, we're talking about people who generally have low incomes. Uh, uh, you know, the, there have been reports, I, I believe it was the Pew Hispanic study, uh, that estimated that Ill- illegal aliens have um, earnings of about $30,000 a year in the United wait, States. Wait, 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 uh, wait, wait. Ira, Ira, they have wages, Ira, they have wages of that. The, that's correct. Th- that's not the total measure, uh, measurement of the contribution contribution to the economy. That's true. I mean, somebody is paying them $30,000 because they're producing more than $30,000. But, but, you know, there's also the assumption that that would not, that economic output would not be replicated if not for the presence of people in the country illegally. But, you know, just getting back to these individuals, you know, if you have an income of $30,000 and you're putting your child in a New York City public school Mm -hmm. uh, where it costs $20,000 to educate that child, there there is no conceivable way that you could be paying as much into the system uh, as you are getting just from that one benefit alone. Uh, So, you know, you do have to look at what what factors these economic reports are looking at, and most of them select very carefully which factors that they're going to look at and which ones they omit. Well, the two that the two that I'm looking at, one from the Brookings Institute and one from the National Academy of Sciences, are extremely broad and take in those very very broad, as you say, not just the benefits that are a check with your name on it. They're extremely broad. And they also take into account the effect on the labor market, particularly the effect on the labor market of non-immigrant, uh, low-skilled workers. And even the person who you quote, George Borges, he says that in the long run, that for high school dropouts, so in other words, Americans at the very, very lowest end of the educational spectrum would experience about a 3% decrease in their wages but they would also benefit from substantially lower prices in the economy, uh, essentially lower inflation and the products are available at lower prices. And uh, um, I think we're not going to resolve that argument, but the... 
Yeah. The, can, the, can, the, can I just the, point out that, that low wages is, is not necessarily a benefit to the economy. First of all, uh, there is no such thing as cheap labor in a developed nation. It, it is only subsidized uh, labor that you're getting. Oh, this uh, cheap you, and cheaper. We, Some labor is no, there, cheaper there is no than such, there, there really is no such thing as cheap labor. Because no, no, not cheap, but it, cheaper. There, there, are certain, there, are certain, there are certain costs to having people in society. And if you're not paying for uh, what they need in terms of the wages that you're paying for, paying them, uh, then you're going to make up for it in some other way. Uh, you, you know, maybe you save a nickel on a cup of coffee because there's somebody working illegally in the back of the restaurant washing dishes. But if you're paying an extra quarter in taxes to provide education, health care and all the other things that this worker and his family need, then you haven't benefited at all. Yes, I, I accept. I think you're correct when you say that. But that means that those nickels and those quarters need to be added up very carefully. And people, uh, several organizations, including, as I say, National Academy of Sciences, Brookings Institute have done that. They've come to quite a startling different conclusion to you. you well, actually, the, the National that Academy of Sciences has not come to a startlingly different view. And, you know, the, the, one of the uh, people who authored that study actually put a wrote, wrote an op-ed uh, saying, that, you know, I think the title was Conclusions We, we Didn't Come To. But anyway, we, we could debate this endlessly. But just basic logic tells you, number one, that people who are earning low wages uh, are, are going to have to be subsidized in Western societies today. Uh, and also, you know, just cheap labor, you know, finding people who will work as cheaply as possible is not necessarily the most ethically uh, most ethical system uh, that you would want. Look, we never had cheaper labor in the United States than when we had slavery, and no one would defend the institution of slavery because it lowered the price of cotton. It, it, it simply, you, you simply cannot justify things just on, on that alone. That's true. I certainly agree on that. The one other issue that you highlight on the front page of your website, and the headline is Stolen Lives, Victims of Illegal Alien Crime. And there are a series of websites that you can follow if you want to, uh, who almost make it a sport of trying to find any crime committed by illegal aliens. The research on this, though, is very clear. There's absolutely no evidence that illegal aliens have a higher crime rate than any of the rest of the population. And there's fairly substantial evidence that they have a lower crime rate. Okay, so the point is that we, you know, we should let in additional criminals, even if they commit low crimes at a lower rate. If the perpetrators were not here, then the crimes would not have been committed and there was no reason for them to be here. Well, well, clearly, if you have the population of the United States, you'd have the crime rate as well. You'd have the, the numbers of crimes, but not the crime rate. The bottom line is that an illegal immigrant is well, less likely to commit a crime than an American citizen. Well, again, it, it, uh, what kind of crimes are we talking about? Um, right across you know, the spectrum. If we're talking about things like identity theft, it is actually going to be a much higher rate because, I mean, that, that's simply one of the ways that illegal immigrants survive in this country. And it very often has severe effects on people whose identities and social security numbers are stolen, e even if it's unintentional. Uh, it, it does affect other people. But, you know, the, the, the victims are not statistics. The, you know, 
percentage points don't really matter. Uh, it, if it is your child uh, who has been murdered by somebody that got into the country who wasn't supposed to or was released back out onto the streets because some local jurisdiction decided to maintain sanctuary policies, then you know it is small comfort that the illegal population as a whole commits uh, crimes at a lower rate or, or the same rate as the American public generally. Wait, wait Ira, there, you're jumping back and forth from the general to the particular. Now, if you want to talk in the particular, you can say that the overwhelming majority of illegal immigrants are not criminals in any sense. I will say that. The overwhelming yeah. majority. And, let me just say and, that yeah, right now. Yeah, uh, the, okay. o- the overwhelming majority of, of illegal immigrants are not criminals. In, in, in which case it's unfair to tar them with a with the brush of a small minority and if you want to talk in the general you can say that the crime rate amongst the rate of committing crimes amongst illegal immigrants is lower than that amongst native americans but you can't mix the particular and the general back and forward as it suits you either you want to talk in the particular and not associate anybody with anybody else in that same group as them. Or you want to talk in the general and you want to say that a population X is less likely to commit a crime than population Y. But it's just not rational to jump back and forward from saying, well, we can find a particular case here where an illegal alien committed a crime. Therefore, all illegal aliens are bad people. That's just not uh, not rational. We never said... We never said that all illegal aliens are bad people. So, so in what in what case, in what way then, should individual cases of illegal aliens committing crimes inform the debate? It, it should inform the debate in that our policymakers are not doing what is necessary to pre- to prevent people from coming into the United States illegally. And as a result of that, you do have some criminals who are coming in. Uh, you know, certainly there has been a, an influx of gang members uh, that have come in. And again, I'm not conflating all uh, illegal aliens with gang members. But if you're going to leave your borders unsecured, you are not only going to get people who are coming here for understandable reasons, albeit, you know, doing it illegally, uh, but you're also going to get people who are coming into the United States to do other things that um, can harm people. That in no way conflates the general uh, population of illegal aliens with those criminals. It, it is simply saying that the same factors that made this country accessible to people who were just coming here to look for a better job is also uh, an avenue for people to come to the United States and who want to commit crimes here. But Ira, you could apply that argument to any population of people. You could say, if we shot all redheads or if we locked up all left-handed people, then all the crimes committed by redheads or left-handed people wouldn't have happened. It's technically true, no. but it just doesn't inform no, because the debate there, there, No, because there's no, there's no law that says redheaded people can't be in the United States. There is a law that says that you're not allowed to come into the United States illegally. There is a law that says you're not allowed to overstay your visa. But that's not connected with an elevated rate of crime. You accept that? It is additional crime that is unnecessary and unnecessary victims. And again, just because it may be statistically below... If you banned all immigration, legal immigration, you would also reduce the absolute number of crimes because you'd have a lower population in the country, correct? 
again, the, the people who are legal immigrants are not violating any laws. Uh, yes, I mean, you can do well, it. Some of them are. You know, it, it, some of them are, yes, and we should deal with them. So if you kept them Let me finish the thought. Let, can I finish the thought? Go right ahead. Uh, you know, we're not saying that we should stop legal immigration just because a small number of legal immigrants do commit crimes once they're in the United States. Uh, we should deal with those people as criminals because they've committed criminal acts. Uh, but somebody who is coming to the United States illegally, whether they're coming here to uh, you know, work in the United States or whether they're coming here to commit um, other uh, offenses once they're here, the fact is they have violated the same law. And therefore, uh, it is perfectly reasonable to say we should enforce our immigration laws generally. Uh, we certainly should enforce them to prevent uh, people who might be coming here to you know, create all kinds of havoc. Sure, I agree with that last point for sure. Um, but you, do you accept, and I'm looking here, for example, at research by the Cato Institute, which is certainly uh, no liberal lefty organization. Uh, it's libertarian. It, it is libertarian. It, it, the libertarian says, philosophy is let everybody come in and just kind of let things work out for themselves. They, they have a respected ap academic record. And the quote is, Cato scholars have produced much original research on the topic, finding that illegal and legal immigrants both have lower incarceration rates than native-born Amer Americans and lower criminal conviction rates in the state of Texas, the only state where data is available. Uh, and then sociological researchers that they mention have found higher immigrant populations do not increase violent crimes. These researchers teamed up with Purdue sociologists to look at how higher illegal immigrant populations affect drug arrests, drug overdose deaths, and DUI arrests. They found large and significantly associated reductions in drug arrests and drug overdose deaths, and DUI arrests with no significant relationship between illegal immigrations and DUI deaths. Do you accept that research, that there is less criminality amongst immigrants illegal and legal than there is amongst the native population? There, there is data to suggest that legal immigrants commit crimes at a lower rate. And one of the reasons is that they've gone, gone through a thorough screening process uh, before they arrive here in the United States. Uh, there is no data to suggest that, at, you know, just as there is no, app, no data to suggest that they commit crimes at a higher rate, uh, there also is no data uh, that suggests that they commit crimes at a lower rate. Okay, okay. That's coming close to what uh, Cato people are saying. But... Given that that's the case, and given that on your website you have soft focus videos, or one called uh, the, A Stolen Life, somebody who was tragically murdered, and other very tragic stories, that presents the image that immigrants are more likely to be criminals than is otherwise the case. That's true, isn't it? No. We never said that. We never suggested that. We What we said is precisely what I said before, is that if you're not doing the job in enforcing our immigration laws, uh, that these are the avoidable results and very often tragic avoidable results. Uh, and that's that, that's certainly true. Okay. Uh, I think we've got as far as we can on that. You're very clear that you don't want illegal immigrants in the country. Are you happy with the legal immigration regime that exists in the U.S.? 
No, you know, we we feel that the system certainly doesn't uh, reflect the interests of the United States. Uh, What we have is a family chain migration policy uh, that reunites not just nuclear families. I think everybody can agree that nuclear families ought to remain together uh, and that people who come to the United States should be entitled to bring a spouse and their unmarried minor children. But we also allow for a whole range of extended relatives to be admitted just based on who they happen to be related. To. In any other area of public policy, this would be known as nepotism, uh, and it would be done away with. Uh, it, it, instead, in immigration policy, policy, it serves as the basis of our immigration policy. What we should have is an immigration policy that admits people based on an objective assessment of what they're likely to contribute and uh, their likelihood to succeed once they arrive here in the United States. For example? Uh, and, and we... For example, would give what? me a portrait of the type of person. Oh, oh well, what we would do, what we should do, uh, is do what most other countries do: is have some kind of point system where you get points for education, you get points for job skills, you get points for, including having relatives in the United States, uh, and, and then take people based on you know whoever uh, it kind of grades out the highest, just like, you know, most other institutions uh, just don't pick people randomly. They don't hire, you know, companies don't hire people simply because they have to be the brother-in-law of somebody else who is working Mm -hmm. at the company. Uh, You know, there's no reason why we should not have an immigration policy that's fair to everybody. And what happens when you have this nepotistic-based immigration policy is that you get large flows from a handful of countries, while most other people are shut out. You know, we talked about uh, Ted Kennedy's bill to get more Irish into the country. Uh, And, you know, one of the reasons that Irish could not get into the country at that time was it had been many generations since you had large-scale Irish immigration to the United States, and they no longer had the relatives that were needed to get into the United States. So, you know, we have created a system where we discriminate in favor of a small group of countries simply based on the fact that they've had high levels of immigration in the recent past and discriminate against everybody else. Okay, I actually take your point on that, and I can see how that's a a flaw in the system, to put it at its kindest. But the point that you want essentially high skill, and did I hear you say also points for speaking English? I I didn't necessarily say high skill. You know, you you have to... the economy is dynamic, mm-hmm. uh, and you know what we need in 2019 may be different from what we need in 2029 or 2039. We need to have a system in place that looks at looks objectively at what the needs are of the country. But, but uh, at those, those needs could be large amounts of low skilled labor. It might at some point. There's no evidence that that is the case now. Uh, but again, I mean, I, I I'm living in 2019. I don't know what the world is going to look like in 2029. One thing uh, that you may be aware of, a guy called Eric Schlosser wrote a book or wrote an essay going back about 20 years called something like Strawberry Fields Forever, where he detailed how farming interests in California essentially wanted to keep the legality of low-skilled immigration at a very precise level. They didn't want it to be legal, but they didn't want the law to be enforced too strictly either because they wanted to get low-skilled workers in, but they wanted to make sure they were illegal so they wouldn't ask for too many rights. That's essentially what's happening still, isn't it? It it is, uh, and it's disgraceful. Well, in that case, my next question is, how do you think California farming could continue? 
Well, California farming could continue if they paid higher wages to attract workers. Uh, there was a study done by George uh, I believe his name was George Martin at um, UC Davis some years back, uh, in which he estimated that the labor component of what you pay at the supermarket for produce is about 10%. So theoretically, you you know, a dollar's worth of oranges would cost you a dollar ten tomorrow if they doubled everyone's wages. And, you know, nobody's seriously suggesting that that's going to happen. Uh, but labor is a relatively small component. The other thing that having access to this cheap or subsidized labor force does is it prevents mechanization. Uh, in California and elsewhere in the United States, you have products that are still being picked by hand, where in other countries they are being picked by machines, uh, eliminating the, the need for the, these low-skilled, low-wage workers. So, you know, we are impeding certain things that might uh, produce benefits in the long run. Uh, obviously, you know, these are huge capital investments, and, you know, as long as you can avoid making them uh, because you have access to virtually unlimited labor at the price you want to pay, there's no incentive to do that. But, you know, the, the bottom line, you know, sort of getting back to, you know, the, what I was saying about slavery, yes, I mean, the, you, you could probably make an economic justification back in the antebellum South, but it didn't make it right. It was still an abhorrent system. Uh, and, you know, if you're exploiting people today, uh, it's no less abhorrent. Okay, I agree with that last point. But your organization, FAIR, is listed by the uh, um, Southern SPLC as a hate group. Why do you think, I presume you disagree with that, why do you think they've got that so wrong? Because, look, the SPLC is nothing more than a, a hit group. Uh, it, you know, you might also make note of the fact that their entire leadership structure uh, has either been fired or forced out just within the past year based on uh, allegations of institutional racism in their organization, uh, sexism, uh, harassment. Uh, they are nothing more than simply a paid uh, you know, hit organization um, Nobody takes them seriously. Do you think that anything about the background affair would give people cause to worry about the motivations? I'm thinking particularly of the no, founder, John, John, Taunt, John Tanton. Would you be comfortable with all of his views? I, you know, his views were expressed in, in just memos that he was sending, uh, you know, just ideas that he was putting out there. It didn't necessarily mean, mean anybody endorsed him, including him, uh, but certainly FAIR does not endorse any policy that gives preference to uh, anybody based on race, religion, national origin, or discriminates against people based on those uh, characteristics. And FAIR has a 40-year record. Uh, and, you know, we stand on that record. You can go back and look at the positions that FAIR has taken over the past 40 years. You know, just one prime example, uh, you know, you mentioned that you're, uh, you're Irish by, mm -hmm. uh, by origin. Uh, it, back in the early 1990s, Ted Kennedy tried, established the Visa lottery system, which at the time was called the Irish sweepstakes. It was set up specifically to get more Irish immigrants into the United States. It was a time when the Irish economy was in the tank. Uh, there was demand, uh, but because of the family chain migration system that we have, uh, most Irish couldn't qualify to come to the United States because they didn't have the requisite family connections here in the United States. Mm -hmm. We opposed 
that legislation. We were probably the only organization that opposed that legislation, precisely because it granted preference to one group over all others. Oh, hold we on believe a second. that it didn't, for, be- it didn't formally grant. You're, you're correct that it was much easier to take advantage of by perhaps Irish people than other nationalities, but it didn't formally mention any nationalities and say that uh, this nationality or this ethnic group is favoured over another. That's correct. It it didn't overtly say that, but it was pretty clear that that was the objective. And, you know, I don't even think Ted Kennedy denied that at the time. Uh, But, you know, nevertheless, we we opposed it based on the fact that it was designed to give preference to, you know, certain groups of people over others. Okay, pause that idea. I I understand what you're saying there, and that's that's a reasonable point to take. But I'm just looking at a quote from John Tanton, who said, who was on the board of FAIR for, I think, 30-odd years or so. And he said, that he had come to the point of view that for, and it's, it, the quote starts, I've come to the point of view, so it's clearly him saying his own position, I've come to the point of view that for European American society and culture to persist requires a European American majority and a clear one at that. That's a clear ethnic, probably racial preference that he's exper- expressing there, isn't it? But- well, that was never Fair's position, and you know but he, what, he was the dominant it, he, figure in, in in that organization well, for it, pretty no, much all of its existence. Well, clear, clear, clearly, he was not because uh, Fair had never adopted any position that was even remotely close to that. Uh, you know, again, you, you can look at the history of the organization. There's a 40-year record. Uh, Fair has never once taken a position uh, that would suggest that we want certain immigrants and not others based on those sorts of characteristics. Oh, okay, that's a fair enough answer. And I, um, John Tanton also was a supporter of what's called eugenics, which was a, a pseudoscience. No, he was not. Well, that, that, that for sure he was not. Well, let me read you a quote from him then. It says, do we leave it to individuals to decide that they are the intelligent ones who should have more kids? And more troublesome, what about the less intelligent who logically should have less? Who is going to break the bad news to the less intelligent ones? And how will it be implemented? I, I'm not familiar with that quote, but certainly eugenics has never been an issue in the immigration policy debate. They're, they're two completely different uh, things. Uh, FAIR's focuses on immigration policy. Um, we, we don't do anything related to, to eugenics. Okay. Uh, Ira Melman, Media Director for Federation of American Immigration Reform. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow FAIR at FAIR Immigration. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. And thanks to everyone who's signed up so far as a patron on Patreon. I really appreciate you. And if you other listeners could do the same as them, that would really help me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And to do it, you can just donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. Go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.changingopinions.com. 
The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.